reading today is from John 21, chapters, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 25. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net onto the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there, with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, (coughs) took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, You dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things. And he wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Great, I'm going to pray for Mark and for us as he opens God's word to us. Father, thank you that you're a speaking God and we pray as we meditate and dwell in John 21, you would speak to us. Please bless our dear brother Marco. May he speak uh, clearly, faithfully, and winsomely to our hearts in the power of your spirit, so that we might see and savour our Lord Jesus again afresh today, we pray for his sake. Amen. Afternoon, everyone. Nice to see you. Well, um, does anybody know what's special about this coming Wednesday? If Mark were in the room, he would definitely know. Liverpool Boston. I'll give you a clue. Today is the 5th of May. Wednesday is the 8th of May. It's VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. The 8th of May, 1945, the world celebrated the end of the Second World War in Europe. After nearly six years of war in which about 80 million people lost their lives. Ah, let me just grab that. Uh, just to give some sense of proportion, that was 3.5% of the world's population at the time. Um, that would be the equivalent of the entire current populations of Germany, the United Kingdom, France and Italy, all, to, all together. 270 million people. Or, from another perspective, 125,000 people a day, every day for six years. And it was over. Now, if you were a survivor, would life be different? After VE Day, that is. Would day-to-day -day life be different than it was during the war? Well, of course it would. And so it was in 1945. The British government created a new ministry called, I have to read it because it's a long title, the Office Committee for the Coordination of Departmental Action on the End of Hostilities in Europe to plan for peacetime life. And, uh, and it wasn't just committees. Uh, in fact, Churchill himself took a hand in planning for peace, very importantly checking that London had enough beer for the night. And um, in a gesture of outrageous excess, instructing that properly licensed dancing halls across the nation remain open a little later than usual. <laughs> Winston, you party animal. <laughs> the point is, everything had changed. It was VE Day. The war in Europe was over. It was peacetime. Something had happened. Hitler was dead. Germany had surrendered. And its happening changed everything. It had life-changing implications. Well, Jesus was killed on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. And he rose to life. He defeated death. And that has world-changing and history-shaping implications on a universal scale. And it has life-changing implications for you and me. Something happened. Jesus rose to life. And it changes everything. 
And what John's doing here in chapter 21 is showing us more than just Jesus' victory. He's showing us how Jesus applies his victory in the lives of his disciples. You'll remember from uh, chapter 20, verse 22, that Jesus again promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection to life, his soon ascension to heaven, to the presence of his Father, and the sending of his Holy Spirit mean something for disciples, for us. So absolute, so total, so complete was Jesus' victory over sin, over Satan, over death, that here in chapter 21, he shows us how he extends his victory, how he prosecutes and applies his victory in and through the lives and the hearts of those he saves. In other words, Jesus is not only the conqueror of death, he is the conqueror of hearts. And in this passage, John paints a portrait of a conquered heart, Peter's heart. We're going to um, zoom in on just two details of this portrait of a conquered heart. Uh, First, a conquered heart is free from shame. And second, a conquered heart is devoted to Jesus. So first, Jesus takes away our shame. You'll see when Peter realized it was Jesus on the beach, he, um, he, he leapt off the boat and swam to him. And interestingly, I wonder if you notice what he did next. Um, it's quite striking, in fact. He kept quiet. He said, nothing. Peter, who throughout the gospel accounts is always the first to speak and the loudest, making the boldest declarations of love and loyalty, now silent. Why? What happened when he reached the shore? Seconds before, when he realized, as John told him, it was Jesus on the beach, he tucked up his robe and shot off like a bolt. But as soon as he walks out of the water, he is struck speechless. In fact, he doesn't speak at all until after they've all finished eating breakfast and Jesus has taken him for a walk down the beach. And only then, when Jesus directly asks him a question. So what happened? Well, look with me at verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Fire of burning coals. Your translation might say uh, a charcoal fire. The word in the Greek is anthrakia, and it is used only twice in the whole Bible, both in John's Gospel, and it's very significant. And I'll read uh, the other occurrence to you in a moment. But first, let's just remember some of Peter's story leading up to this bry on the beach. (laughs) I must tell you, I'm very chuffed that I managed to get the word bry legitimately into a sermon. <laughs> now you remember at uh, at the last supper Peter, Peter didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. He didn't want Jesus to get close to his filthiness. He was a brave and a strong man. In fact, John tells us here that Peter pulled in a haul of 153 fish all by himself. He was a rough, physical, powerful man, ready to fight and die alongside his master. He wanted a leader, a captain, not a dying savior. Even so, Jesus, if all these others desert you, I will never fail you, he had boasted. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. 
Later that night, the Roman soldiers took Jesus to the residence of the high priest to be accused and condemned. Jesus and Peter, uh, John and Peter followed Jesus. John stayed close, close enough to hear and record the entire er- interrogation as an eyewitness. But, G- but Peter's confidence began to fade, and he hung back, creating a bit of distance between himself and the danger. John records in chapter 18, verse 18, that uh, the servants and officers of the high priest, that is, had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they stood around it, warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing there, warming himself at the charcoal fire. And while Peter was warming himself at the charcoal fire, John tells us Jesus was being falsely accused by the high priest, hit in the face by his bodyguard. Aren't you one of his followers? A servant girl asked the big burly fisherman. No, he answered. And a second time, haven't I seen you with Jesus? You're one of his disciples, aren't you? No, I don't know him. And a third, I'm sure you're one of Jesus' followers. Peter replied, Luke tells us in uh, chapter 22, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. On Friday night, I was uh, walking down my road. Uh, It was about 8.30. It was quiet, no cars, there was no one else around. I was uh, just enjoying the cool evening and uh, I was thinking about uh, the people I was on my way to see. And then I smelled smoke. Uh, Somebody in the area had a fire going. Um, I smelled the smoke and instantly I was back in Cape Town. Uh, At my house, standing next to the braai, twice in one sermon, waiting for the coals to cool down enough to put the meat on the grid, Kids were eating all the snacks, not sharing any with me. <laughs> Dogs hovering around, Nicolette bringing salads and things through to the... had a big wooden table outside on the patio by the swimming pool. Getting, getting everything ready for a, a family meal in the warm spring evening, just over six months ago. In an instant, I was no longer in Kenilworth. I was in a different time, different place. And the experience of it was so real, I had to stop walking take a minute to fight it out of my mind and uh, compose myself before I went to the meeting I was on my way to. Well, Peter swam to the beach and as he ran to Jesus, he smelled the smoke and he saw the charcoal fire. And instantly he was back in that courtyard. He smelled the fire. He heard his own voice in his memory. I don't know him. Three times denying Jesus. He heard the rooster crowing all over again. (coughs) Worst of all, he was back in that moment when Jesus turned and looked straight at him. And guilt and shame and pain flooded his soul. And all his words were gone. And then Jesus makes it worse. He asks the question that lays open Peter's heart. 
Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. You notice he left out the last part. Jesus had asked, do you love me more than these? Even if all these other others fail you, Jesus, I never will. I'll never deny you. I'll fight to the death with you, he had said once before. But Peter's spiritual pride is broken. No more comparing. Jesus asks a second time, do you love me? And he asks a third, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus did know that Peter loved him. Feed my lambs, Peter. Take care of my sheep. Care for my church as a good shepherd cares for his sheep. Care for my church, Peter, with the same love with which I have cared for you. Jesus went straight to the heart of Peter's pain. He went straight to where his guilt was concentrated and his shame most acute. Why? Because he loved him. He loved Peter and he wanted to remove the guilt and the shame and the pain that crippled him. He loved Peter and he knew that Peter loved him. And to fully restore him, Jesus commissions him to care for his church, the church Jesus came to die for, the church he loved, all those for whom Jesus had had prayed, Father, I desire for them to be with me, to see my glory. His own sheep, Jesus, the good shepherd, tells Peter to care for. It's not that an appointment to ministry is what restores relationship. It's evidence of trust. It's saying, Peter, I know. What more, what greater trust could Peter give to Jesus? Other way around. Could Jesus give to Peter? Than to entrust him to care for that, for those who are most precious to him. Now remember why John is telling us about this. At the end of chapter 20, he said, it's that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. Dear friends, life in his name is life free of the shame of your sin and your failures. If you have come to see that Jesus really is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, who died on the cross for your sin and rose for your salvation, if you love Jesus like Peter did, then life in his name means freedom from the shame of your sin. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross objectively dealt with your guilt before God. But Jesus wants you to be more than objectively not guilty. He wants to take away your shame. Most of you here know that Jesus has paid the price for your guilt. That he has dealt with it objectively. But some of you still need to meet Jesus at the charcoal fire. For some of you there is a memory of something that haunts you, that cripples you, that keeps you from the life Jesus has for you, that keeps you from joy in the presence of your Father, that keeps you from joy in the presence of his people, that keeps you from joy in service. 
Some of you need to meet Jesus at the charcoal fire. Jesus is more than the conqueror of death. He is the conqueror of hearts who takes away your shame. And a conquered heart, free from shame, is devoted to the one who conquered it. Look with me from verse 18, if you will. (coughs) Jesus says to Peter, Very truly, I tell you, one day when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Somebody else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. It's not um, entirely obvious in the English, but in the original text, the way John phrased this, it makes it 100% clear Jesus is telling uh, Peter he would one day be crucified. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus has just commissioned Peter to care for his church, and earlier this morning before breakfast, he had given a picture of the church on mission. You remember the disciples had fished all night long, caught nothing. Jesus told them to try again, and the catch was so big, they couldn't. Uh, it was too heavy, they couldn't pull it into the boat. Jesus didn't need the fish. You remember, he already had fish on the braai. He, he had enough for breakfast, for him and all the disciples. None of them understood this acted parable at the time, but John, writing his gospel, give or take 45 years later, had had time to reflect and understand what Jesus had done that morning. So he adds the comment in verse 11 that even though there were so many fish, the net did not break. In other words, as experienced fishermen, they expected it to break. This net should have broken. Otherwise, why make this comment? But under Jesus' rule, the disciples land a massive catch and the net held fast. Jesus reminded Peter and the disciples that morning, that he would make them fishers of men. What else could they be? Because isn't it true that hearts conquered by Jesus' love, love to see others come to him too? Hearts conquered by Jesus love the world, the lost, and they love God's people, the church. Hearts conquered by Jesus are hearts devoted to Jesus. And devotion to Jesus means loving all the things that Jesus loves. Loving his Father's glory. Loving his Father's people. Loving his Father's world. But loving the lost and loving the church cost. Jesus tells Peter it will cost him his life, that he too will be crucified one day. How did Peter respond? Well, you'll remember earlier in his ministry, Jesus one day told the disciples that he would be killed on a cross and rise from the dead on the third day. Peter jumped in and rebuked him. No, Lord, this will never happen to you. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? You can read it in Matthew 16. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Not too long before this morning on the beach, Peter had rejected the cross altogether. He despised the idea that Jesus would be killed. But what about now? How will Peter respond to the Lord's call to follow him to his own cross? Well, remember, John is writing this 45 years after the event. And in that gap, Peter had actually been crucified. Church tradition tells us that when the hour of his Execution came. 
uh, in Rome during one of Nero's persecutions, probably in the mid-60s. Peter asked to be crucified upside down. He could not accept the honor of dying in the same way as his Lord. But Peter lived another 30 years after this encounter with Jesus, and he knew the cross was coming. In fact, he wrote in his second letter that he would soon put aside the tent of his body as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. He knew his cross stood on the horizon and on the day appointed by his Lord, he would hang upon it and moments later be reunited with his beloved Savior. Now, Peter was no masochist. He didn't like pain. Jesus says in verse 18, somebody else will lead you where you don't want to go. And in a sense, that would be true. He didn't want to go to the cross. But in a greater sense, Peter's heart had been conquered. He loved Jesus more than his own life. He was devoted to Jesus more than to protecting himself from suffering. What a change. Peter, who once tried to turn Jesus himself from the cross. Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus when the cross drew near. Do you know Satan had a plan for Peter too? Jesus once told him, Satan has asked for you, Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. A portrait of a conquered heart, a heart devoted to Jesus, a heart devoted to the Father's glory in witnessing to the lost, in loving the church. And friends, it will cost you and I in just the same way it cost Peter. Look again at verse 19. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. The kind of death. By what kind of death, dear friends, will you glorify God? It is uh, extremely unlikely although not impossible, I suppose, uh, that any of us will ever hang on a cross as Peter did. But as you take the message of Jesus to a lost world, you will need to die a thousand deaths. Death to the fear of man, death to the love of your reputation, death to the desire to be well thought of by everybody, death to the need for social approval, potentially death to some friendships, Potentially death to some of your career dreams. Certainly death to some of your lifestyle and comfort ambitions. And as you seek to love God's people, the church, this church, as the Lord calls you to, death to all your selfishness and mine. Death to all your pride and mine. Death to your and my insistences on secondary personal preferences. And for some here, it may be that the Lord one day does call you to a place of witness that does cost you your life. By whatever kind of death you are called to glorify God, what does your father in the faith, the Apostle Peter, say to you? 1 Peter 2, verse 21, To this you were called, 
because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And again, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Peter, who once resisted death as is perfectly natural, who once tried to turn his Lord from the cross as is perfectly natural, who wouldn't try to turn a friend, a loved one, from suffering? Peter, whose heart was conquered by Jesus and who embraced his own cross upside down to guard the honor of his Lord. Peter, so utterly devoted to the glory of God, who wants nothing more than to honor his Savior and meet him in glory and hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Peter, your and my Father in the faith, calls you and calls me to follow him as he followed Jesus. Has your heart, friend, been conquered by the risen Savior? Is your heart devoted to Jesus? Friends, I must draw to a close. I will tell you I have struggled more this week in preparing this message than any other in the last six months. This, uh, there is so much in here. Um, it's been difficult to decide what not to say. Uh, I trust the choices I've made have been appointed by God for your good. But there's one more thing I believe the Lord would have KCC here this morning or this afternoon. John's Gospel is is full of rich symbolism. One theme we see again and again is that of light and dark and related to that day and night. For example, in uh, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, there's this battle, this cosmic war between light and dark, between day and night. And again at the Last Supper, Satan entered into Judas. He left the company of disciples, went out to put in motion his betrayal, and John says, it was night. This theme began right at the beginning in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, when John wrote that in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And it's brought to a magnificent, breathtaking conclusion here in chapter 21. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. There's no evening in chapter 21. There's no darkness or shade, no sunset, no night. Jesus the conqueror stands on the shore at the breaking dawn. Lord of the new age now already begun. Jesus who conquered death comes looking for you as he did that morning for Peter to take away your shame. Jesus the conqueror of death stands on the shore at the morning of forever calling you to follow him. Jesus the conqueror whose victory over death and Satan is so total, so absolute that he now prosecutes and extends and completes that victory, his victory, through conquered hearts 
so devoted to him that they are willing to embrace a thousand deaths of a thousand kinds to the Father's glory. And so, to you, dear friend, to Kenilworth Community Church, Jesus says, follow me. Would you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our gracious God and Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for your Son (coughs) sent to our rescue to conquer sin and death and Satan, to free us. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning bound by shame, for those who still need to come to the charcoal fire, that you would right now right in this moment be gently drawing them to you so that the smell of that moment, the memory the pain wouldn't be what rules this moment, rather it would be that Jesus is the one who stands by the fire saying come here that they would come to Jesus to be restored we know our guilt is objectively dealt with But for those who need healing from the shame, from the pain, would you be drawing them now to you, Father? Be the conqueror of our hearts. Father, may it be that we are so devoted to Jesus, to your glory, so that as witness brings suffering, which inevitably it will, And as loving one another brings cost, which it will, we will be those who so cherish your honor that we would embrace whatever kind of death that moment requires. Make us fishers of men today as you did your disciples (coughs) 2,000 years ago. Teach us to trust your leading in all our activities. Save the lost of Kenilworth and beyond and empower us to care for them as they become part of this family. And to our conquering Savior, who triumphed over death and the grave, Jesus who has conquered our hearts, Jesus who stands on the shore at the sunrise of his everlasting kingdom, we say, Jesus, you are worthy of all our devotion, worthy to receive all honor and glory now and through eternal ages to come. Amen.